From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you from the Business Radio studio at the Wharton School that's in Huntsman Hall. Looking out on Locust Walk on a beautiful spring. Spring, fellas. Spring afternoon. This is Tuesday afternoon. Recording what kind of live. We're recording in the studio at the very least. Audie Weiner is here across the table from me. Shane Jensen between us. Eric Bradlow is out. He will be back at some point. He's doing Eric Bradlow things. Appreciate you guys joining us. We're going to run... We're going to run three interviews today. We've got an extra interview to run on top of our usual two. We're going to run those in Qs two, three, and four. We have a very special conversation with Mark Brody coming up in Q2. We had a conversation with him at the Sloan Sports Analytics Conference just a couple of weeks ago. This being Masters Week, we figured that is the right time to check in and share that with you. We have Ben Dowsett in the in Q3. Ben is a writer on the NBA. We have a good little catch-up on the NBA here as we roll out of the regular season into the playoffs. And then Q4, wrapping it up, Kate Madigan, assistant GM with the New Jersey Devils, just around the corner from here, talking hockey as also we're wrapping up the NHL season. That is what's in front of us. Q1, open topics, open lines, see where we go. Gents, I have to start with Final Four. I feel like the uncharacteristically, un, unusually, there was more drama around the women's tournament than there was the men's. In fact, UConn wins in kind of a relatively sleepy fashion last night. All their wins, yeah, were no, about I was just digits. looking past all their wins. I don't think they lost, uh, like won by less than twelve points yeah. in any of their games. Yeah, they and people were saying that's a good sign halfway through the tournament. Of course, they didn't have the toughest road, but all the same, halfway through the tournament, they were like beating everybody by double digits. What does this say? And they just kept it going. <laughs> now, that's a great run, and there are some interesting analytics behind it. So, for example, Ken Pomeroy had those guys going into the tournament. This People have been talking about this, but we, we kind of caught it real time. He was guesting on Rufus's podcast just as they went into the tournament, and he talked about UConn, and he had them number one in his power rankings. Had, they were a four seed, five seed, but they yeah. were number one, number one in his power rankings going in. Adi. Yeah, well, I built my NCAA tournament based on Ken Pomeroy, 100%. Is that right? And I won. Uh, <laughs> but I'll throw out, actually, also, one of the one of the tricks I teach my students in our sports analytics capstone is the ability to do a power ranking, which is essentially a win diff- score differential model for basketball with opponent quality adjustment. It's a straightforward or aggression task, and pop comes Connecticut. Is so right? it's... Uh, and in fact, yeah, so I, again, you know, last week when we talked about this, I was like wondering, like, you know, oh, has this been a surprising tournament, or did they just really screw up the seating here? Mm-hmm. And again, you know, at the time I we're like, oh, well, we can't, well, we can't hang on the seating too much. And I'm like, well, second. the top twelve. So somehow the seat, the people who seated, even though Ken Pomeroy and Basically, you know, we, we've now described several yeah. analytical models have UConn as the top. In the country. None of the top. They were top five. Pomeroy's model gets into the committee, by the way. It's an input into the committee. It's one of the reasons that he talks about he has to make sure his priors are out by the end of the regular season because the committee doesn't want – it's bad politics to have the – Right. But the committee somehow had UConn out of the top 12 in the country. Yeah, yeah. It did. Uh, It's funny. But the the basics, the simplest model, which is the schedule-adjusted – Score differential had basically five teams that were almost all the same. 
Is that right? Yeah. Well, that's interesting because yeah. we talked a lot about how flat the top was the this top, year. The, the mm-hmm. first five were just really indistinguishable. So Alabama, Houston, Gonzaga might have been in not there. Not Gonzaga. No, no, okay. Kansas. Kansas, uh, Texas. And, oh, maybe. Purdue maybe, not Texas. Purdue. No, Purdue was not good. Who, 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 they were the other fourth. They were the other one seed, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, UCLA. Anyway, I, anyway, there was a group there at the top. All right, so UConn actually got it done. Um, UConn's, you know, UConn... They had a good run, you know, 20 years ago, 15, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, and here they come again. That's a nice little uh, a nice little bounce for that program who's been down a little bit. Um, but like I said, it was a little sleepy last night. It was a little sleepy that, you know, it was $70 I heard the tickets were. Is that right? I don't know if that's true, but that was what... what uh, do, you, do you know what the number was for the women's final? I don't know. Cheapest seat in the house, $400. Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. That's they they the TV ratings nine point nine million for the final nine point nine million highest since like two thousand two is like five point seven. That's nine point nine is more than the Sugar Bowl or the Orange Bowl this year. It's more than LSU was in the final. Of course, they won the game. They beat Iowa. It was more than the LSU Alabama football game. It was more than nine of this year's Thursday night games in the NFL. The, people were talking about it. People were talking about it, you know, long before the final. That it seems like women's hoops, college women's hoops in particular, is having a bit of a moment. What the, uh, what day? Of the it was Saturday night. Sunday. Sunday, Sunday afternoon. Sunday afternoon. Okay. Well, I, I mean, you better know, than Thursday night. Better than better than Monday night. Yeah. Probably. I don't actually even know. I, I don't know. know. I don't I know. But nine point nine is a good. It's a good. Yeah. It's, it's a, a good showing. It's a good number. Um, Caitlin Clark, of course. She she again had she had these two back to back forty point games and then she scores thirty in the final with eight threes, but interestingly she's got more time. It's not often that you see someone blow up like that and then they don't go off to the pros. And she's actually coming back to Iowa. And it's I mean it's fascinating to me to think about after women's basketball reaches this many eyeballs and this much conversation. And then the stars are going to be back with their teams. Well, hold on. So, so just, hold on. Angel Reese is back with LSU. So the two biggest stars in the title game are coming back. Okay. Well, they can make money in college now, yeah, which is right. huge. And those two and, in particular are making a lot of money. And mm-hmm. they are making a lot of money. And what is the equivalent highest scored rating for a professional basketball game? Yeah, right. It's probably not 9.9. That's right. That's exactly right. In fact, they play those. They played the WNBA in the summertime. And it's just a, it's a little bit of a weird time to be thinking about so basketball. If you're thinking about it, now's the time to stay with your college as long as possible. Mm-hmm. 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 But the, the 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 question is is this is this a build? Yeah, I mean the fact that you know the the college game it seems like the the college game is actually probably peak you know sort of attention towards women's basketball. But you know the fact that that peak is increasing, you, you'd think you know, could potentially propagate into the professional WNBA. You've got to ask yourself, I mean, people talk about women's basketball as being just a different game and having different attributes. And if that becomes popular, maybe. I mean, listen, the the ideal model for women's successful sports is tennis. I mean, there's just, there's no real substantive difference between the attention paid to the men's and women's. Oh, you're saying it's ideal in the way it competes with the men's game. And And I mean, it's a good good analogy because it is a similar, a a different style, right? I mean, I think I ended up kind of gravitating more towards women's tennis back in like I, I don't know like the 90s or something like that because men's tennis was evolving into this sort of like it's just a power serve game right, where it's like right, you're right. just but looking the, at ace after ace similar. after ace the women's game eventually got there too with uh, the Williams 
racers and everything. But at least at the time, it was a much more finesse kind of sport to it. Mm-hmm. See, that's, and that's, that kind of attracted me to it. Well, I would think th- that's that's more my analysis, which is just intuitive analysis, that the game needs to be different in some way. Because in other, in other, in, without being different, they risk just being you know somewhat weaker athletes on average. And so it's not quite as much fun from an athletic perspective. So, for example... I find women's softball super compelling, but it feels like a different game than baseball. It is a different game. It's faster, it's exciting, it's higher scoring. Also, women's volleyball is a spectacular sport. Just absolutely amazing. And there is nothing. Of course, there's men's volleyball. There's even men's collegiate volleyball, but it's not very It's too fast. I mean, at some level, it's a similar analogy. The men's men's volleyball is too smash it up, too quick. And the women's just goes a little slower. And that slowness, like you described, more finesse Spain, and like is longer really necessary. Rallies, et cetera. I mean, yeah. you don't want to watch it. It's mean, a heck of a thing to say about women's volleyball. It's probably true empirically, but it is not a slow game. And it's like, no, but they're not so game. gigantic that everything is just a slam. You know, if you think about it, I mean, I mean you watch the basketball and you, you just can't, you don't want to, ha- when you watch women's basketball, you doesn't want to look like basketball played at half speed. That's a loser of a, of a product. If it's a different game, that, that's, a, that's a winner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's also the college versus pros, and these college teams, especially with teams like LSU in the mix. I mean, there's a the the Stuart Mandel and and Bruce Feldman were talking about this on their show yesterday. There's a brand name that goes with some of these college programs like LSU, and there's a following. Yeah, kind no, of, and I, and kind I of think baked I, in a big. I mean, I mean it's, it's it's a chicken or egg thing, but I think you know it's it's hard to kind of tune into a game, see like like 400 people in the stands watching this thing and really get hyped for it. Whereas right. you're watching the college game and it's like a, a full stadium, just like the men's side or whatever, right. and people are going crazy. I mean, it's going to be people a more energizing product just in there. I don't know how you get to that point, right? I mean, because, you know, that's the fa- fandom, you, you know, like a more energizing game would lead to more fans in the stands as well. But, uh, but yeah, I, I feel like that's the real disconnect between the college and pros right now on the women's side. Well, I want to say a couple of other things. So Kim Mulkey is the LSU coach. She just won her first national title at LSU, but she had previously taken Baylor to a national title. And there aren't many college coaches who have won national titles at more than one program. And she is uh, a lightning rod for criticism in many ways. She's a she's outspoken, but she's wildly successful. And many of her players are very loyal. So she's an interesting, interesting character on top of this thing. Um, the Okay, guys. So fun, fun wrap up of the season. The tournament, even the men's side, it kind of fizzled a little at the end. But up to that point, it was. Oh, fantastic. yeah. Like, yeah, tons of upsets. I mean, again, having UConn have such almost an impressively dominant run at some point did make it a little bit less uh, exciting, you know, that dominance. But no, I mean, you know, there was a ton of upsets. You know, again, the final four was, you know, again, by some of the seeds, one of the most kind of like, you know, probably improbable final fours that we've seen. Here's a question for y'all. Remember, I don't have the goods on this, but it sure did seem to me that ESPN made a philosophical decision, or at least a strategic decision, to give women's basketball more profile a couple of years ago. And they started carrying more games, but also they gave it more profile on the site. Yeah. And I'm in one of the arguments was they are keeping the followership down because they don't give it enough exposure. And there's plenty of people to question that argument. But a couple years on, a couple years on with the eyeballs popping this year, Asking the question of why, I think, is super interesting. And you've got some real stars here, obviously. But you've also got a couple of years of exposure. 
And it's, I'm, I'm curious what role that's played. And I'm curious what was behind ESPN's decision to give it more profile. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I have no idea myself. I do remember it was a couple of years ago. There was that big controversy, essentially at the start of the tournament, where they were, they were, I, I oh, think that, that they were co-located yeah. or whatever. That might have even and just the been last year. Sp- was, was that even last year? It was, it was, year it was within before. the last few years, right, certainly. Right. Um, where the, you know, they, the, you know, just the facilities that the women were being <laughs> offered, like they're like, you know, out of out of court, like training facilities and stuff like that were a joke yeah. compared to the men's and there was a huge brouhaha and that kind of got yeah, corrected right. and I, right. I wonder how much that like you know very controversial moment sort of helped kind of you know again Ignite reinforce bit, uh, yeah. reinforce the you know increased equality going forward we we need an espn Matt, matty d we need an espn exec to um to to inform us about some of these decisions if they're willing to talk about them all right changing sports i saw something on Twitter last night about a, a friend of mine wearing Wharton gear but pulling openly for the Yankees against the local team. I know. That has to happen. That was me. Yes, I was at Yankee Stadium. My, my daughter tweeted it out. Uh, I actually went, went with a bunch of family members, all Yankee fans, and she represents the state of New York, so she was representing the <laughs> Yankees, and she outed me, despite my Wharton gear, despite the Philly presence in Yankee Stadium, despite the fact that I do root for the Phillies strongly as my favorite National League team, mm-hmm. end of the day, Yankees have to go first. And, of course, the Yankees started with, a, with it's an indication of the new system, two interleague series, first the Giants, then the Phillies. Um, it was my first baseball game of the season. It was a great game. The speed of the play was just wonderful. The game itself was lots of pitching changes, lots of scoring, lots of hitting. Still two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah. A reasonable time. But it's more than the, the total time. It's the idea that there's just action happening one thing after the other it's movement motion yeah forward. no and i and again i i don't understand anybody who's opposed to the increased pace of play like you know i've heard people talk like oh well it's less less baseball for my money i'm like it's not less baseball it's just less space the the there's the same amount of a, like baseball activity and action it's just less spaced Especially, out there's less waiting time between moments but there's and two so, other things that i noticed which are when you're at the game you see this the shift mm-hmm. they are not there's holes up the middle and yep. to and and it's the old style uh, it's adding already 15 points to the batting average i think 20 is not unreasonable we'll see by the end of the season and yeah that was i mean nice we're having higher scoring games that are over quicker it's Higher scoring games are <laughs> you know there was that, that that opening day game I think it was Toronto the Blue Jays against the Cardinals it ended up being like seventeen runs in that game <laughs> nine eight finish and it still like was only three hours three long. hours so what what's interesting so there's a metric I want that metric runs per hour or yeah. runs per half hour whatever yeah, right. Like, Stuff per unit time because you want to factor in like <laughs> stolen bases that don't <laughs> no. lead anywhere. That's so exciting. So you by know. the way, stolen bases are up even when even Spot. when they don't steal. The threat of stealing is, seems to be more more present in the game, which mm-hmm. makes you more interested. And finally, I mean, you have the shift, the speed, and the stolen bases just makes more activity going on. What was interesting about the game last night was I, I, I'm interested to look this up, but Phillies uh, scored one run. Typically, when you score run, run, you may have between three and seven hits. They mm-hmm. had 11. They yeah. just constantly were getting singles and even a double, but nothing was coming home. And they just, it seemed crazy, just this constant parade of hits not producing it's any like runs. a Yankee playoff game. <laughs> right. Like a Yankee playoff game. Thank you. Oh, my God. He just has to hit it there. Boom. Um, boom. But, there, but there was, I thought, one analytics error. I mean, one one 
kind of well-known analytics observation is that when there's two outs and there's a single and a runner from second, basically you want to try to score them despite the you know the arm because it's uh, if you hold them up, the probability of not scoring is just significantly higher than the probability of many things that could go wrong between the throw from the outfield to home plate. In fact, the throw did go over the catcher's head, and if they had gone. It ran home, he would have he would have scored. But instead, all the worst happens. The pitcher backed up the throw. That was Cortez. He threw it to third and got the runner. And a play that looked to be potentially a, a a a bad call from where I was, but they didn't challenge it. And that's another thing that's new for this year. You have 15 seconds to challenge. You can't yeah. sit there and study and study and then challenge. You got 15 seconds to make the decision. It has to be more the intuitive judgment. That's right, and that actually moves the game along. Mm-hmm. I mean, it mm-hmm. feels better. That's only the most egregious. Um, uh, calls or really obvious errors get get tagged right away. So how happy were you and the crew with the way the game started last night? So bottom of the first, there's a center fielder error, I think, and then bases loaded, and then a couple runs come in. I mean, this is I mean, it was sloppy, but it was if sloppy. you're pulling for the Yankees, it was you have sloppy. to be happy about it. Yeah, it was. But I'm never root for sloppy play. But yes, that was that was that was fun. There were a couple of homers. In fact, there was a, there was you know Stanton, who's such a, a giant, he crushed one, and I thought that was just gone, and it it. It died at the warning track. Stantonian blast. It was, it it died. I mean, he hit famous, it 395 some feet. ones of those, you know. But not out of the ballpark. And uh, obviously, one of the things that I like to talk about with the analysis of baseball is a lot of factors that go into how far a ball will travel. Mm-hmm. The angle and the velocity are the two obvious ones, but the temperature outside was cold. Wind. That, and wind. And, um, and the ball. This is the thing that I love to talk about. The variation in air resistance from ball to ball is substantial. Okay, hold on. You have to translate into that the feet travel. Variation... And feet traveled as a function of so. Uh, so let's say you take a uh, twenty-seven degree vertical angle, hundred mile per hour. That typically would go about three hundred and eighty feet. Okay. Ball to ball standard deviation is about fifteen feet. Wow. Okay. That's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, I would have guessed so, like five or ten. So yeah. be a stats prof for a second and tell us what you mean by standard. Like, translate standard deviation into something more meaningful. So um, the. the Generally, the, the texture of what's on the ball, which is the, mostly the height of the seams, but also could be the feeling of the ball, um, they vary from ball to ball. These are handmade. And that, that little differences change the air resistance. And that air resistance is measurable, at least approximately, from the speed at which the ball de- decreases from the time it leaves the hand until the time it is caught by the catcher. And if you look at that d- drop, which is about 8% or so, 10%, it can vary from as little as 6% to as high as, say, 13%. And that is an indication of how fast the ball, mm-hmm. how, how much friction there is in the ball. And mm-hmm. if you build a statistical model that predicts how far will go, a ball will go, and you use that bit and then look at the, the coefficient on that, you'll see that the, the, the one standard, you know, the balls range from very friction-full to less friction. I mean, it's all very small. You wouldn't really feel it too much in your own hand. Uh, professional pitchers can feel it. It, it amounts to a, a couple percentage points in its distance traveled. Mm-hmm. And that translates out. And mm-hmm. A full standard deviation in either direction is about 10, 10 15 mm-hmm. feet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. All right. Anything else before we change gears? Any last MLB observations from well, this first week? I would just want to kind of set people up for a couple of things they should be tracking as the year goes on, you know, less at the team level, but at the individual level. Uh, I saw an interesting kind of summary of some pitching milestones that are coming up. And just want to point out, you know, Clayton Kershaw's three wins shy of 200. You know, Adam Wainwright's wow. five wins shy of 200. Justin Verlander's six wins shy of 250. And that's one to 
really observe because I think Justin Verlander will be the last pitcher in baseball history to hit, to get to 250 wins. Wow. I don't think any other pitcher is going to, you know, if Clayton Kershaw is not even at 200, you know, nobody's going to count. Verlander's going to be basically, yeah, the last, we've already had the last of the 300 pitchers, a, 300 it, win pitchers. Back, back when we were kids, a 20 win season was a thing. Yeah. It was a good season, wasn't that unusual? Yeah, or I mean, like pitchers like Twenty five was Greg Mattis, Greg Maddox, Grandy Johnson, um, uh, Roger Clemens, they all won over 300. You know, 300 used to be the kind of very elite pitcher mark. It's now 250, and I think Verlander is going to be the last one to do it. I don't think anybody will get close what, there. So Kershaw's 50-plus away, pl- 50 plus away yeah. at this point. Kershaw's 50-plus away. How many win. has he won the last few seasons? I know he's had some injuries. Uh, like, I mean, you know, I, I would guess... 10 to 12 on average. So it's like 12 would have been thought of as an extremely mediocre season. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I think, you know, uh, again, you still do get occasionally a pitcher that goes to 17 or 18 wins, but that's kind of the cap. And, you know, for even a good pitcher, 14 wins is kind of the average now. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. Those are some good milestones. That'll be fun. All right. So, fellas, one last sport before we go. The first big major of the year is here for the for the for the for not even just the PGA, the the world of golf. In fact, speaking of the PGA, one of the interesting things is that the live golfers are going to be there, like in double digit number of live golfers. And this is the first time, and really the only time, other than the British Open last year, that they're going to be. And out that's, there that's because the Masters kind of the the the. They're, they're not actually so connected to the PGA that the, right. you know, the PGA doesn't have any control over who goes to this. That's right. That's right. They can really do whatever they want to do. Um, I mean, again, it's a private club having a dirty, basically. They can invite who they want to invite. Yeah. Um, let's talk about who we expect to perform well down there. So people talk these days these days about the big three, and that'd be Scheffler, Rory, and John Rahm. Mm-hmm. And those those guys are coming in. Those are favorites right now. Scheffler's the one that's been doing extraordinary things most recently, I mean, right? Most recently, yes. But just before that, Rahm was. And so Scheffler's coming in at the lead, but but. 650 plus 650 to win. Rory's about plus 700. Ron's about plus 900. So right three, pretty close together. Right behind that, Jordan Spieth. Talking about, I always want to you know see what's happening with that guy. He hasn't done it in a long time. He's only won one ever. He hasn't won a major in years. People are waiting for the breakthrough. He's been playing well. He obviously likes Augusta. Maybe not number 12, but he likes Augusta. We'll see how he does. Right now he's like number four in the odds list. Maybe plus 1,600 or so right there with Cantley. Cameron Smith right behind him. Morikawa, our guy, our ball striker, Morikawa, Homa, they're about plus 2,000. So that's a bunch. But, I mean, what would you take, Shane? Would you take Scheffler, Rory, and Rom or the field? I'm pretty sure you'd take the field. Oh, yeah. But it's tempting when you have three guys who are playing as well as those guys. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you kind of whether that disparity suggests that you should. I mean, I I would always take the field. Unless unless you gave me, like, ten golfers, I would always take the field. And and even though those guys obviously have been playing extraordinary right, you know, lately. Well, it'll be fun to see. We've got more on golf in the next quarter with with Mark Brody. Stick around. Catch up with that after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey in today with Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, we are in the studio, but we're going to throw you back a couple of weeks. We had a chance to talk to Mark Brody, Columbia University President Mark Brody. He is innovator golf analytics, and he's a great conversationalist. We sat down with him at the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Show a couple of weeks ago. Shane and I had a 
comfortable 30-minute chat with him on the floor of the conference on a Saturday morning, and we thought Masters Week would be exactly the right place to share this conversation with you. So sit back and enjoy a conversation with Mark Brody. Happy this morning to have run across Mark Brody, longtime friend of the show. Mark's also somebody who, despite having talked to him on the phone, texted, guest lectured in his class, we've never actually physically met. The pandemic is a contributor to that, I'm sure, but we are delighted now to be sitting down in the flesh with Mark Brody. Mark is a professor in the business school at Columbia University. He is the creator of the Strokes Gained concept. What a claim to fame, a renovation in golf analytics of golf experience, golf fandom, golf coaching, and the beginning of a real revolution in golf analytics. Mark, pleasure to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Cade and Shane, thank you so much for having me. So, Tell us, how often are you at this conference, and how have you experienced it so far this year? So I've been coming, I think this is my fourth or fifth time, a couple times giving research presentations and a couple times being on panels two or three times. So, I don't know, once every three years maybe, and uh, it's a fantastic conference if you're interested in, in obviously, sports and, and analytics, which mm-hmm. is what your show's about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, the fun, one of the fun things about our show, from our perspective, is that the world of sports is so broad. So we spend a lot of time watching football, watching baseball, talking about that stuff, but then there's always another sport. So at this conference, for example, we visited with um, one of the uh, chess commentators and, and former grandmasters. And golf is obviously more central than chess, but it's off the radar for some folks. You and your work have helped make it more relevant to the sports analytics world. What's your take on where golf is now in terms of analytics and sophistication? How would you characterize golf in 2023? Well, I think there's a lot of connections between golf and these other major sports. And uh, after teaching a course in sports analytics at Columbia Business School, come to find out that strokes gained in golf is basically expected goals in soccer. It's expected points added in football. It's expected runs added in baseball. So it's the same kind of idea, performance relative to a benchmark, but with a different kind of application, methodology, estimation, procedure. But the idea is very much the same. And so that's sort of fun. And you see it at at conferences like this. The same questions that apply to the major sports are also applicable to the more minor sports, Formula One, golf, darts, (laughs) chess, poker, (laughs) It's a, it's a wonderful connection. That's fantastic, drawing that thread across those different sports. Do you th- is it fair to say that it's almost the foundation of analytics in each of those sports? And in that way, it is merely descriptive. And all the prescriptions are going to come later. They're going to build on that. But you, you, you pretty much have to do something descriptive when you first walk into a field. And expectations are one way of thinking about that, that fundamental task, that first task. Exactly. So the the baseline that you create is basically what defines average performance, and then you can measure the deviations from that. So that gives you a player is doing better at putting or worse at driving, similar in, similar in other sports. But that's, as you said, the descriptive part. The predictive part is then taking that data and seeing what is more predictive about the future. And it turns out that putting is not so predictive of the future, whereas 
driving and approach shots in golf are. So this kind of predictive analytics builds off of the sort of descriptive statistics to start. In building the models for what we can expect performance to be across different sports, I think one of the main kind of limitations to building really good expectations or, or, or kind of like, you know, coming up with, you know, the right kind of contextualization of expectations is data availability. And I think maybe golf is a little bit forward of a lot of other sports in terms of kind of the the availability of, of, of the data that you would use to make these expectations relative to a sport like hockey or, or, or maybe basketball. So can you talk about like how, you know, is, is that a, do you sort of see golf as still being kind of forward in the industry in that respect? And I guess if you were to have new data, well, what new data would you like to have to further refine what we think about as sort of like expected performance in a, in a round of golf? Yeah, I, I, I love, I love that question. And Golf was really ahead of the curve. Uh, back in 2004, and they planned this for a couple years before, they started their shot tracking program called ShotLink. So since 2004, we have a million shots per year of every player on every course at every event. And this was before most other sports had, had similar data. And the availability of data allowed the advanced analytics to be developed, but that's not why the data was created. The data was created for the fan experience. And I love it because that wasn't the original intent, but once you have this database that you collected, then people figure out other uses and other ways to monetize it, you know, betting being a primary example now. But this wasn't the original vision this was before smartphones, and now you can watch on your smartphone the shots of players, and you can root for your favorite player. So it's hard on a golf broadcast. You see whoever they're they're showing you, whereas on a phone or on a desktop app, you can now follow your favorite players, and it's 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 just great for the for the fans. And then where are we going? Well, I would love to see more data and analytics in golf broadcasts. I would love to see more. You see the trajectories, the you know the the red curve, so much better than seeing a white ball against a blue background. You can see how they're curving it. I would like to see the data on all these shots. It's just a question of cost. I would like to see the data on how the putts curve on the green and how the green contours affect the difficulty of putts. And the other thing that I think would be great, getting down into the weeds, something called three D biomechanical data where you, you actually now don't need sensors on the shoulders, arms, legs, and you could see how a player is swinging. So when a player hits a shot 50 yards to the right, the announcer, in, instead of just looking at it and see, oh, they, they bent their knee or their arms, or you could actually have numerical values showing what did they do differently than their great drives. Super interesting. I remember we talked with, I forget who it was, but it was baseball about biomechanics and measuring biomechanics. And they talked about the value of just having the number that you might think as a coach that guy's not opening his hips enough. 
and you might be right about that. But then to be able to say, you know, usually you're at whatever, 95, and you're only at 91.4 is validating and also gives you a degree, a sense of the degree of the error. And you're suggesting something similar here. It's like, yeah, it's one thing to hear Brandel Chambly say, ah, I think he like, didn't come all the way up. To, he started down a little earlier or something. Well, how right. about quantifying that? Or here's another one. How about, you know, John Rahm has that abbreviated backspring. Let's quantify the abbreviation. Like that, we can start talking about, oh, here's some more. How about the similarity of the biomechanics? We think that Furex swing is unusual compared to everyone else's. How unusual on how many different dimensions? We, so, I mean, we had Keith Goldner. We talked to Keith Goldner, who was a co-founder of Numberfire. All of their stuff early on was similarity models. You know, it's like the old, what, what did Nate start with in baseball? The oh, Pakoda. Pakoda. Yeah, yeah. All similarity. We could do similarity scores for golf swings Absolutely. if we quantify these biomechanics. That's super interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And there's a great book called The MVP Machine that Ben Lindbergh wrote. And, a and lot Travis Sacek. Don't, don't yes, short Travis. and Travis. Sorry about that. Um, which is basically talking about the data revolution in baseball. And they make the point in the book that baseball is 10 years behind golf a lot of the things that we're talking about with launch monitors and shot tracking data uh, especially for coaching and 3d biomechanical data force plates golf had 10 years before baseball a hundred percent i mean this is the, the first sport we knew anybody was going and like wiring themselves up and getting on camera was golf and you're, you're right i hadn't thought about it. like 10 years sounds about right i mean i have a golf obsessed buddy who took his game from nothing to quite good over a very short period of time part of what he did was he was in some wired up you know golf galaxy or whatever it is in the suburbs of chicago learning his swing very technically golf was way ahead of that stuff this other thing you just mentioned so we were talking about the biomechanics but other in the fan experience you're talking about other things we can add to, to telecast or whatever you talked about putting and just as soon as you said it, i'm like well that's interesting i'd like to know so if this putt were flat an eight foot putt so i think it may be your work or i forget who's now established for me that the eight foot is a 50 50 mark for for professionals for professionals harder than you might think on average on average of course but now let's give it some bend and one way of judging you know when you're playing golf you can see the slope and like this is this is awful what i gotta do here okay what does it actually do to the make probability and so you could characterize a putt it's like a normal putt of this length 12 feet would be whatever 35 percent but with this bend our estimate is that they're going to be you know 15 percent. that's a break that's a difficult break exactly and wouldn't it be nice on golf telecasts Instead of saying from eight feet the make percentage is fifty percent, they say on average is fifty percent. But this it's thirty five because of the break, and a lot of non golfers don't realize that you're not playing on a flat floor. You're playing on this curved, contoured surface, and half the battle is trying to estimate how much the break is going to be. It's not just can you hit it in this direction at this speed is figuring out which direction and which speed do I need to hit it. And so you can go from, you could have on the telecast, eight footer is normally 50%. This is 35. Exactly. Mark, I mean, you've just schooled me and I'm the one always preaching to our staff about, you got to represent variance here. You can't just settle for the means. And when you said average a moment ago, I thought you meant across players, but you meant, you're saying much more interesting. You're saying we say eight footers are 50, 50, a flat eight footer is not fifty fifty. For a pro, a flat eight fifty, a, a flat eight footer is probably ninety percent. 
but most of them are flat. And we and so you're saying across all, oh my goodness, that's all such players a great, and all green contours, and, and more important is the green putting, contours and all putting grass types, Bermuda, Poana, different kinds of grass types make a difference too. And there could be one percent slope, two percent slope that affects the break. So one of the next kind of viewing innovations maybe we could expect or at least hope for is some kind of when a, as, 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 as a, a player is kind of getting, lining up a putt, we've now got like kind of the, you know, kind of the optimal or what, what our model calculates as the expected trajectory given the contours, the green. And if, if we get good enough about that modeling impri- enterprise, can we then kind of deconvolve a player that hit it in the right direction but just with the wrong speed versus somebody who, you know, actually had the right speed but, you know, it just was misaligned. Yeah, act- that, that, that's exactly right. And you have three skills in putting. One is green reading. The other is hitting your line, direction, and the other is hitting your speed or your velocity. Trying to decompose those two is a little bit hard because the green reading, you're not exactly sure what the intent is. And it's the same thing with approach shots. You have where the ball started, where it finished, and it would be great to also have the trajectory and the wind and all the others. But what you don't know is the intent and what's the target. And it's often the case. There is examples of this where a player is 200 yards away, there's water on the left, and they're aiming 20 feet right of the pin. They pull it by mistake, and it ends up three feet away. The announcers are a great shot, but they really know <laughs> it's a good miss. They, they ended up 17 feet away from their target. Right. You just don't know what their target right. was exactly. Well, it also reminds me of some of these diabolical greens you find yourself on some, pl- some places. In Scotland, for example, has a number of these. And if you happen to be at one of these fancy courses yeah, with a... Foot off where you wanted to and it's like... Well, no, no, no. It's a different, a different thing here because Mark was saying the intention with a putt, you might think everyone's got the same intention, but some of these diabolical greens, you can literally putt it one of two ways. You can say you can take it way out here real soft or you can run it pretty hard in a firmer line and they, they'll give you an alternative. It's like two ways to play this green. And that's not what people usually think. And that's where sort of some math and dynamic programming comes in because you have multiple strategies. There are an infinite number of ways to sink a putt and to miss a putt. And the trade-off is one might have a higher chance of going in the hole, but the other, if you miss, might leave you a longer second putt. That's exactly (laughs) right. That's exactly right. Okay, so as we were sitting down, we were talking about some of our previous guests that you've listened to and been in, and, 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 and taken some interest in. And you mentioned Sam Schwartzstein working on the alternative broadcast for Thursday Night Football on Amazon. And you're saying, I've been trying to get the golf guys to do an alternative broadcast. So tell us more about, so you're talking about bringing some of these ideas in there. Tell us more about your thinking on that and tell us whether you think you're making any progress with those guys. Well, I think... Um Actually, if you listen to SiriusXM on the radio, they bring analytics into the broadcast much more than they do on TV. Because TV, you can kind of watch what's going on. And um, But I think the, the radio programs, they bring in strokes gained and what why a player is doing this or that. Somehow the audience is more sophisticated or the, the announcers are. But I think some of the time is wasted saying, this player is three out of five from bunkers this week. It's like, that's a small sample that's, that's meaningless. I think you could do better 
by talking about the difficulty of this particular shot, and there's ways that you can quantify that and then show it, show it on the screen. It's those kind of things that I think would be interesting for the fans. And it's like you said, variants are putting it into context that, that could be done more. Let's be realistic, though. Are there enough of us interested in that thing? So football, biggest following in America among sports. So even if it's a small percentage who are interested in the more analytic Sam Schwartzstein stuff, there's still a lot of them. Golf is a much smaller audience. So do, so how would we practically pull this off if there are fewer people like us who want to sit around and look at that kind well, of data? Well, first of all, I hope it's, it's an attraction for the younger audience. So I think it'll bring in more because the younger audience expects this kind of information. I think the older audience can get used to it, but could also, you could always do the parallel channel stream kind of thing where you have the more techie, analytical kind of stream together with the, the more traditional stream. So that, that's possibly one way. Another way is you have this running ticker on the bottom or on the side. That, that adds some information with, if you're not interested, you can ignore it. If you are interested, it adds context and fun and excitement to what's going on. Yeah, and I think one kind of particular, just feeding off that, I think one particular type of excitement or context that would be very valuable is, you know, so many, you know, you know even a casual fan can watch somebody hit like a fairway shot a few feet from the hole and everybody's going crazy around and they know that that was a really good outcome and, and, and great performance and, and given what they had. But, you know, some like, like a bunker shot, you know, just you, you being able to quantify that, you know, it's only a 20% chance you even get onto the green from this bunker. The fact that this person got it onto the green you know, being able to kind of put a little bit more context and numbers on that, I think, will make some of these shots that those of us who play golf know aren't routine will make them seem even less routine to casual viewers. I've got a variation on that that I want to share. One of my fantasies for years has been that when they announce the players, this would be best in the NBA because people get announced individually, that they have an average-sized person on center court <laughs> so that they, we have a, some <laughs> reference for how unusual this person is and, on occasion, how not unusual the person is. So we, don't have, we lack that reference. I, I just want to put one regular person in every Olympic event. Exactly. Okay, so so here's a not completely crazy variation for what we're talking about. I just saw a post from Dan Rappaport, the golf writer, commentator, and occasional friend of the show. I think it was Dan. So he said, people often ask me, what shot do pro golfers have that amateurs don't have? And he showed a clip of Spieth hitting out of a fairway bunker with a fairway wood to like 250 or something. Amazing. And, And Dan's answer was this. They don't have this shot. Okay, so here's an idea. What about you, you, you take even just one shot on a course per tournament, some place where we know a lot of pros are going to end up, whether it's off the box or whatever. And then, now let's take 100 amateurs. You can have a handicap range if you want to. Let's not, I'm not talking about rank duffers. I'm talking about like amateur golfers. And have them play out of that spot. And let's record digitally or whatever what happens so that we can compare the pros to what we as golfers might experience. That would be fantastic. And I think one of the allures of golf is that you can play on the same course that pros do. Very hard to imagine yourself playing in an NFL game against these these football players. But you can play the same course, you can hit the same shots, and one of the things you can you can do and really see the difference, you put amateurs on a 200-yard par 3 and you watch them hit 100 shots, you'll see them all over the place 
versus the pros. You put amateurs and you give them 100 players hitting 8-foot putts, some of them will do quite well, and you can really sort of viscerally understand by, by seeing clips like that, wow, putting is not the biggest differentiator you thought it was. These 200-yard shots, or like you said, 200-plus out of a bunker with the fairway wood, amateurs will fail 95% of the time, right. whereas putting, you have a chance. <laughs> okay, let's talk about putting. You've mentioned it twice now. How should we as watchers of golf, fans of golf, pull, pulling for various players as we do, how should we think about putting? Because I'm, I'm, in, I'm inclined to go all the way to the edge now and say it's more or less all chance. And when a guy gets on a run on, you know, on Sunday in Augusta or whatever and runs a, a bunch of 20-footers in or 30-footers in or even just a few of them in, we tend to say he's hot. He, you know, he's got a great read on these greens. And when he's playing, he probably feels that way. But statistically, is it the case that eh, it's pretty much just chance? And it may be the determining factor in who wins the tournament, but it's not predictive out of sample. It's just the way it broke that day. Is the extreme view wrong? It's, it, that extreme view is not, not wrong, and it's, I think it's close, close to accurate. And there's a, a couple of of points to make. One is that you can think of strokes gained as showing that the best players are the best ball strikers, but the winners in the week that they win tend to be the best putters. So it's almost like you have this horse race. The leaders of the horse race going into the back nine on Sunday are the best ball strikers, and then the hot putter out of that group is the differentiating factor, who who wins the tournament. That's certainly a little bit of an oversimplification, but if you take a look at the variability in putting, it's much bigger than the variability in driving. Roy McIlroy can hit it 20 yards further than an average pro every week. That skill doesn't come and go. Putting definitely comes and goes, and you can have hot putting rounds and not, and so that's why putting is less predictive, and many golf bettors, when they, they take a look at predicting what's going to happen in this tournament, they subtract out putting to an extent because it is, it is less predictive and they go on more um, predictable ball striking kind of stats. Very helpful. Very helpful. It's so sobering, but clarifying. <laughs> so appreciate that. Mark, we're going to have to let you go, but one last question for you. What are you thinking about in the world of golf or what questions do you think are interesting? What question do you think is really interesting right now in the world of golf? So something I worked on uh, the, the last couple years was a modification of the official world golf rankings. Mm-hmm. And so wrote a paper with a colleague, Dick Rendleman, in 2013, where unlike showing drive for show, putt for dough is uh, incorrect, when we published something saying the official world golf rankings were biased, everybody said, yeah, we knew that. It was just some academics that sort of quantified it and made it a little bit more rigorous in the analysis. But then nothing happened. Um, Working a lot with the official World Golf Rankings Board, again, I have no connection, but I'm an academic doing this, Um, I came up with a modified algorithm, which was announced uh, August of 21, and it went into effect August of 22. Um, And so that was both rewarding and challenging because... We expected the reception would be 
you know, kind of half positive and half negative because when you change the rankings, there's winners and losers. It seemed like the reaction was kind of 90% negative, but uh, uh, we have now an unbiased, provably better ranking algorithm in, if in it's place. If unbiased and provably better, why would it be 90% negative? What happened? So everybody takes a look at their circumstance and their event and says, well, compared to last year, <laughs> we're getting fewer points. And when when people look at that, it's it's very easy to be misled because it's all relative. And it's true. Most of the points, except for the majors, did get reduced. So if you just take a look at last year versus this year, it has the feeling that everybody is getting hurt by this. But you can't, in a ranking where it's a zero-sum game, have 90% of the people getting getting hurt. But it is it is more fair. There's part of a slow changeover that will take a while to, to come in. And it's, it's worked out pretty well in the last few weeks. Every single week it seems like the top three players have a chance to return to number one. Well, that's just the John Rahm effect. You got there the, you, you go. You big John Rahm into your, your rankings in 22, 23, and you're going you're gonna to do pretty well. But, but more seriously, what did you take as your objective function here? Let's talk about what went into building this thing. Like what, what is it supposed to capture? Yeah, so that's one of the things I think is not very well understood or appreciated about rankings, which is what's the goal? And chess, with its ELO rating system, has a different goal, which is predictive, golf and most every other sport doesn't want a predictive system they want something to rewards performance and those are different and you hear this like in the college uh playoff you know who's gonna who's gonna make make this is it who's the most deserving or who's the best the best is like predictive who's the most deserving is like who who played perspective kind of what actually happened. right yeah in in golf Reward for performance means we're going to count a win a ton more than second place because winning matters. Second, third, fourth does matter, but much, much less. Okay, but Mark, and, now, as a decision scientist, at least occasionally decision scientist, how do you decide how much more, how much less? You've got to, now you've got to like have conversations with the powers that be to decide what the relative importance is, right? So golf has had a tradition for decades laying that out. How much money does first place get versus second versus third? So it is arbitrary, but it's well accepted. That's a golfing norm that's been there, and so you need to have an argument why you want to change that. So we went with that as the golfing norm. Then the question is, how do you build a fair system on top of that objective? Right, and then, I mean, the, the, how, where are you adding value beyond just ranking people by their earnings? You can't do that across the world. You can't compare dollars to euros. You don't actually want to penalize somebody who's playing in a a strong field event that doesn't have as big a purse because of whatever sponsor it is. So you can't use dollars. Okay, so you've just named an important dimension that you're going to include, and that is the strength of the field. And this goes back to the first thing we talked about half an hour ago on expectations. And... There's different uses of the word strokes gained, but one of the uses of strokes gained is you solve for a bunch of simultaneous equations where you figure out what's the average performance adjusting for the course difficulty and the strength of field. And if you do that properly, you can say this is what a player score, how a player score on this course 
would compare to a player score on that course. So you can bring them all to a neutral or an average course, and then you can measure skill that way. So if your goal was to measure performance in a ranking, you could just use the strokes gain metric. But if you want a reward for performance, turns out strokes gained is an input, and there's a couple more steps to come with a reward for performance ranking system. Okay. Very cool. Uh, fun, fun to hear about that and, and neat, a neat project for you and a nice contribution to golf. Uh, is there a golfer that any name that you remember that kind of bubbled up a little bit more as a result of the change? Not, not off the top of my head, but what I'd say is it makes very little difference in the top ten. Okay. So less than one ranking position. Where it mattered is the majors tend to invite – but they all do now, the top 50 in the rankings. And it would matter about three positions, three wow. players, wow. around 47, 48, 49, three players in, three players out. To those players, yeah. it matters. Yeah. Remarkable. To, to us. So yeah. it's really important for the players. Yes, if you're number one, yeah, you care about that. But if you're 47th versus 53rd, wow, that can make a big difference to your career. Okay. Neat. Fantastic. All right, Mark, thank you for taking time to be with us today. It's a pleasure to get a chance to have a relaxed conversation about this world that you've carved, this golf analytics world, and it's a pleasure to meet you in person. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Shane. It's been uh, fun to be on here as usual, and you do a great job with, uh, with your show, and I, I tell all my students to listen to it. <laughs> well, thank you, Mark. We'll tell all our students to take your class down at Columbia. Mark Brady, professor at the Columbia Business School, inventor of strokes gained that's the first half of Wharton Moneyball we still have a half to go come back and join us after the break you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball rolling into the second half now have Shane Jensen and Audie Weiner here in the studio with me this is Cade Massey Eric Bradlow is out for the moment. He has been here and will be back. We are all here in some combination almost every week of the year. We love it when you jump in and join us in some way. Give us a shout. Give us an email. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Hit us up on, on Twitter, at WMoneyball. At WMoneyball is our Twitter account. We follow everybody we talk to. We tweet occasionally about the world of sports and sports analytics. Speaking of Twitter. We have a guest coming back on the show in this half hour, Ben Dowsett. Ben is a great follow on Twitter. We recommend you follow Ben on Twitter, at Ben underscore Dowsett. That's D-O-W-S-E-double-T. He is especially strong on basketball, but he expands beyond basketball, as most good observers do. Ben is a freelance writer, NBA features, does work with ESPN 538. Delighted to have you back on the show, Ben. Good afternoon to you. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Remind us where you're calling in from, out west somewhere, I believe, but we need to be reminded. That is correct. I am calling in. I can see a window behind you that shows beautiful weather where you guys are. I am looking out at a window that uh, there's a foot of snow, and it's still snowing because I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Uh, that's apparently how our climate is now. Right. Exactly. Well, you've always had good snow. You just have a little more of it this year than perhaps. It's been insane. I think we're setting the record, like in the modern record for most ever. It's wild. It's extraordinary. Do you get out and take advantage? of that in any way or is it all just burdensome 
I do from a hiking standpoint in a normal year. Unfortunately, I have a a bad foot injury currently, so I'm not doing a ton of that. But uh, but no, the skier in my family is my brother. I kind of gave up on that seven or eight years ago. It's just so much money and so much time. I, I couldn't stick with it. But my brother gets up there a ton. Right. Well, um, listen, man, the, we're we're getting close to the playoffs in NBA time. I think we're down to three or four games per team playoffs the picture is not yet clear uh, in fact some teams are really on the cusp there's some drama around that what storylines are you following most closely as we wrap up the regular season well first i'll just quickly mention one that i'm not following closely and that's the mvp race or any award race those the conversations have become so toxic that i don't really care anymore uh so that's not going to be reasonable one that reasonable good okay that said, there are a number that I just think are fantastic. One that we've been, you know, it's it's nothing new to anybody because we've been tracking it all year is just how tightly contested the Western Conference is mm-hmm. in terms of, I mean, we've got a race for the five and six seeds right now. We've got a race for the play-in right now. We And all of these races are separated by single games, in most cases, multiple teams sitting in, in, in the standings right next to each other. It's been fascinating all year long, Frank, like – Parity over long periods of time. There's debate about how, how good that is for a sport, et cetera, et cetera. But something like this in a single year, and particularly when it's not necessarily normal, like this is not how it usually goes in yeah. the NBA. Yeah. I'm definitely tracking that. I'm certainly, of course, tracking the returns of certain players who have been out for some period so of hold, time. And- hold on. I want to hear about that, but, but because that's going to be rich, let's hold on for just a second and talk about the, the races you just mentioned. So we, I always have to remind myself what the setup is under the new playoff structure, but Six teams avoid the play-in games, and then teams 7 through 10 are playing an oddly structured tournament in order to determine the last two teams in. Is that right? That is correct, and apologies for I, I'm uh, I I didn't know my audience and just cruising right past the uh, the details of that. Yes, so that is the setup. You make the top six, you're guaranteed to play a, at least one seven game series in the traditional format. However, if you are seven through ten, and this is just a fantastic addition from the NBA that's really increased parity, competitiveness, decreased tanking. It's it's been really good since they put this in a few years ago. So the seven through ten do end up in the play in, and the way it goes is seed seven in each conference host seed eight in one game while seed nine hosts seed 10 in another game the winner of that seven eight game that that team gets the seven seed done so if you win if you are either the seven or eight all you've got to do is win one game and you are in as the seven seed the loser of that game then hosts the winner of the nine ten game so if you're in the nine ten and you lose your first game in the play in you're done and also you have to win two games so there is a huge value in being either seventh or eighth rather than being ninth or tenth, like exponentially larger value to being in one of those positions. So that third that third series, if you will, is also just a one game series. They're all one game series, these three Correct. matchups. Okay. Terrific. Winner take all. And we've got, you know, some interesting teams knocking around down down there at the bottom of the West. I mean, right now you have the Warriors and Clippers above the line, but they're only one game ahead of the Lakers and Pelicans, and then you've got the Timberwolves right below that, and Oklahoma City is in the mix as well. This is interesting. Right, and by the frankly, by the time this comes out, all of this could completely alter. As we record this, four teams from five to eight have 38 losses. I typically go by losses when I'm looking at these sorts of things just yep. to, to keep it even. <laughs> that Everything could be completely – we will basically know, I believe, by the time this comes out there, and – that that's absolutely fascinating, and it's another reminder of how good of an addition this play-in tournament was. Because in prior seasons, 
certain of these teams would almost certainly not be going for this. You would see teams like maybe the Mavericks, who there's debate about whether they're going for it anyway, uh, the Thunder, a few others who are in that territory, who in a normal year, if just eight teams made the playoffs, would be have have long ago said, ah, you know, probably benefits us more to start intentionally losing some games and optimize our draft position for next year. Right. That's no fun. Fans don't want that. Fans right. don't want to watch that. Instead, fans have gotten to watch more teams play more competitive games as the year has gone on. It's just mm-hmm. been a great addition. Real quickly on the Mavs, it surprises it surprises the outside viewer, the naive viewer, to be told that they might not be going for it considering they traded for Kyrie Irving at the deadline. So what the heck? And why are they sitting there below the line at distinct risk of missing the playoffs altogether with two of the best players in the league? Look, there there might not be great answers for everything you just asked, and I I don't think even the 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 most negative person when they made that trade could have imagined that, that it would have gone this badly. I believe they've gone uh, seven and twelve in the games that Kyrie Irving has actually played, and then those don't count the ones that he's missed, which we know that he's always going to miss a number of games. That that's been one factor. The team clearly not gelling, and just the simple fact that they traded a lot of their reasonable support pieces to obtain Kyrie Irving in the first place, and had already lost Jalen. Brunson, another one of those very valuable support pieces in free agency to the Knicks uh, over the last summer. Between all those things, yeah, they're looking at a, a very real potential scenario where they may look to drop down. Luca has said, again, we'll know more when this actually drops, but Luca has said he wants to play as long as they have a chance. He doesn't want to be shut down with, right. a, with the goal of a draft pick, but depending on where things go, we could see that happen. The guys are both trying to get in. I'm trying to hold them off for one last Mavs question. How should we think about Mark Cuban as an owner? I, 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 we should have a more – somebody should be like rating front offices, rating owners, putting people into tears, helping us understand there's such a – especially in an active owner like he is, there's such an important influence on an organization. He's, on the one hand, he was one of the first guys to bring a full-time analyst into the organization. He's brung, He's had some really sharp people in the organization, but obviously he's had a lot of drama and soap opera even around some of those sharp people. He seems – you know, he's a very successful business guy. How do we think of him as an NBA owner? What tier do you have him in? How should we even think about him? So I that's a great question, first of all. And I will say, the, so let me frame it like this. Compared to other owners who are as involved as he is, and there are a handful, not in fact, actually, or even comparably involved, because frankly, as as folks around the Mavs will tell you, Mark Cuban's really the GM of the Mavericks. Like oh, wow. he's he's both the owner and really the like GM. Jerry Jones, he, there's two of those in Dallas, then I guess. Right, exactly. It's funny that Dallas has two of the best examples of that in the entire sports world. Uh, he so people would tell you that, and it's very true. He takes an, a very active role in the the operations of the team and cares a lot about it. And among there are several other owners in the NBA who at least takes some kind of role similar to him. They, I don't know that they go so far as basically being the GM, but there are other role owners who are involved in that. And I will say that to my to what my knowledge and what gets reported publicly, Mark is much more effective than any of those other owners who try to thumb the scales with their teams. Some of them are some of the more well-known owners in the league, often not for great reasons. You know, a Dolan in New yeah. York, yeah. Uh, that there are some other examples there. I would say the one exception to that, the one guy who's close to him there would be Steve Ballmer, who also takes an active involvement with the Clippers, but has been very smart about understanding that he doesn't know everything in the basketball world, that just because he's a billionaire doesn't mean he's a genius about basketball and that he should bring in uh, people who really do know basketball to be his primary decision makers. I I will say, I think sometimes Cuban still has his, his issues there. He still wants to thumb the scales more than the, the right 
quote unquote uh, approach would be. And there are certainly potential criticisms in terms of cultural elements. There have, you know, there was the, a sexual harassment lawsuit that a lot of people, frankly, did not think got handled very well. Uh, and I could, frankly, I could waste a lot more, not waste, but take up a lot more time by discussing those kinds of things. And those are certainly potentially serious issues from a basketball management standpoint, as I, I kind of took it, you were asking the question, I definitely place him in the upper tier, particularly among owners who take the level of involvement he does. Okay. Okay. Noting that that's an extremely low bar, but we do appreciate the characterization. That's true. <laughs> so you, you, we talked about the Kyrie church trade sort of failing. Is there a, um, an analytics angle on that? Or is there something I can take away from this idea of going after a big superstar and then turning out to a complete disaster? Generally in basketball, does that work? Or, I mean, it doesn't work in baseball. I know that. This is, that's not a good avenue to build a team by just buying one one player. The Angels are really excellent at having two of them. Well, and, um, though I think the baseball analogy would be players added at the trade deadline whether they put a team over the top or not you could certainly think of players that have done that in the yeah, past yeah but those are teams. you know exactly but this is i mean but basketball my old vision i'm not i don't know that much about basketball is that a superstars can have big impact so what what is there something we can take away from this that uh, that would project out to other teams in other years so I think there are a couple of things. First of all, there's definitely still very much a, a jury out situation in terms of does the, you know, the big three or quote unquote or the big two or whatever, does combining superstars at the expense of depth, do, is that the quote unquote right approach? We have seen examples of where it's worked and won championships. We've also seen examples like the recent Brooklyn Nets that have been, including Kyrie Irving, broken up where it was a miserable failure and, and went down in flames. Uh the most important thing I think to take away is that context is very important. So in this case, I just mentioned as we were discussing this, that in the trade to obtain Kyrie Irving, Dallas had to send out two immensely valuable role. One could even maybe call them more than role players. Those being Spencer Dinwiddie and Dorian Finney-Smith. Spencer had become easily their secondary creator behind Luca since they lost Jalen Brunson, as I noted in the off season last year, he was very important for that role. Luca can't just do everything offensively for that team. Dorian Finney Smith, meanwhile, was easily the team's best perimeter defender. He could defend multiple positions on the wings, shoots well from three, which you need around a guy like Luca. You lose two guys like that. Plus they had to send draft equity. That's that could hurt them down the line. Combine that with losing Jalen Brunson last offseason and combine that with the fact that Kyrie Irving, while immensely talented, doesn't have some of those same skills in those players that they lost. Sure, he can fill that secondary ball handling role very well and actually has. The numbers with Kyrie on the floor have been pretty good for the most part, but he does not. He's not the defender that Finney Smith was. He's he doesn't play off the ball as well as a guy like Dinwiddie did. So for a multitude of reasons, acquiring this player has weakened them in other areas that are that frankly they had already had issues with before this and we see that in certain cases just combining as much talent as you can when the when the texture and building of that talent is so far off from the the modern NBA that you're you're not going to be able to succeed. I apologize that was a bit of a a whirlwind answer there. Yeah, well and what I'm hearing kind of out of that is, you know, really, you know, to the extent that you are going to entertain one of these superstar trades, what you're really kind of looking for is complementarity to what you already have and what you're going to be retaining even after the trade. And is it the case, you know, I think what Audie's kind of desiring is like, oh, 
Can we actually learn from past mistakes, past mistakes and successes, build some kind of predictive model about whether some superstar is going to complement versus not complement their new team? Is it the case that you kind of feel like superstar skills like Kyrie's are idiosyncratic enough to Kyrie that it would be hard to kind of look at like, you know, to look back and sort of be like, you know, well, let's look all to, at all the other kind of Kyrie-like trades in the past. Maybe there's just too small of a sample to actually really kind of develop a historical model for that. Yeah, I think the sample part that you mentioned is likely the, the biggest one there, especially if we're only looking at superstar trades. If we're not looking at free agent acquisitions and things like that, your list of, of options there is not especially large. And I don't know that you could identify trends there necessarily. I do think it's important to the, the context of rules plays at least some role. I don't know that it can be the whole thing. Like when LeBron and, and this wasn't a trade, but when LeBron and Dwayne Wade combined in Miami, they had similar the, – the synergy there wasn't perfect. They both needed the ball in their hands a lot. They both – you know, that was where they – neither was great at as spot-up shooters at the time. And they were able to overwhelm that with uh, other fits and other pieces they brought in. So context really is king here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Ben Dassett, freelance writer, NBA follower, contributor to ESPN and 538, and a great follow on Twitter at Ben underscore Dassett. Ben, before we went off on the Western – battle for the play-in spots you also alluded to another set of storylines around players coming back which is huge of course in the nba we need look no further than last year where the warriors didn't have their team together literally played a single digit number of minutes if i remember correctly until the playoffs and then ran all the way through what are the storylines for key players coming back to playoff contenders well, it's funny you mentioned the Warriors because they are one of them. Uh, and this was not due to injury, uh, uh, but Andrew Wiggins of the Warriors has been away from the team for, at this point, I believe, close to two months uh, due to personal issues, which we don't know about and don't, frankly, it's not our business to know about. Um, we have seen reporting from Adrian Wojnarowski in just the last couple of days that Wiggins will be returning to the team. In fact, by the time this is out, he will hopefully have returned and begun playing. While he is certainly not the best player on that team or the most important player on that team, we know who those guys are. Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green. Wiggins has been a huge piece for them and was a huge piece for them on that run to the championship last year. He provides excellent perimeter defense. He provides an offensive creation element that occasionally they need when their offensive machine breaks down. So he's a great example of one player who will be getting reintegrated. Another major example, potential example, I should say, is Zion Williamson of the New Orleans Pelicans. At this point, as we're recording this, we aren't sure that we had heard that he's certainly going to be reevaluated before the the regular season ends. Is there a chance that he could be returning to play minutes for, frankly, a team that over the last few weeks has quietly been very good? They're in that group that we just discussed Mm -hmm. in that play-in tournament, but Mm -hmm. with a chance to rise higher and maybe even get themselves out of the play-in tournament and get the Mm -hmm. six or the five seed. He's the potential return of Zion could have a huge impact on that entire situation. Uh, another player so who has just what, recently one, one follow-up question oh, on Zion uh, to the to the lay lay naive outsider. It feels like I don't even want to get on the Zion bus because it doesn't run very long before you have to get off the bus. And uh, do we have any? I mean, if we had any any model that would predict playing time for this guy going forward based on historical playing time, it would not be pretty, right? Is there any reason to believe we're ever going to see a regular? robust Zion? Unfortunately, probably not. The best we can go off there is is hopes. You're right. If one was to build a predictive model, it would predict him to play less than half the time, which is how often he's played so mm-hmm. far in his career in the NBA. Uh, sadly, some of this 
may have been predictable when you look at a player with that kind of a frame who generates that kind of force, that kind of, of torque every time he moves, frankly, uh, unfortunately, and, you know, was blowing out shoes in college. I don't know if we remember that when he yeah, blew yeah, through right, his Nike sure. shoe in a game. Unfortunately, this may have been somewhat predictable, but uh, the whole, uh, frankly, I don't know that there's a single player in the league who I enjoy watching more. While it's only hopes that we can go on at this point, I certainly mm-hmm. do hope, whether it's just this year or, frankly, more importantly, for the long term in his career, I hope that the, that the the player can be healthy and that we can see him for longer periods. So maybe that's a conversation for another time, but the idea that you can you can just the biomech the, the the observable body shape and and biomechanics provide some predictive traction on injuries is interesting and he seems to be a combination of just sheer mass plus plus burst that you would think is great and is great when it's healthy but also is a recipe for injury and that's something generalizable presumably and that'd be interesting to dive into in more detail at some point I actually, I know it. we may, if we have time, discuss certain forms of technology coming to sports and basketball, and some of them are heavy in that area in terms of uh, bringing us more knowledge on load, uh, play, uh, the the various tensions that are on players' bodies. Not that they can tell us everything or that we're simply going to have the, all the answers right away, but technology may bring us a lot closer in some of those well, areas. Well, Ben, let's, let's take that fork then because I know you're doing some writing and thinking on technology and basketball, and I feel, I feel like you are – um, you have these strong convictions that it's going to be pretty revolutionary, that we're going to see a different game because of changes in technology. So what do you have your eye on in particular when you take those positions? Definitely. So I'll start with one thing that we already know for sure, and that is that it's already been announced for beginning in the 2023-24 season. So that's starting next fall, next season. The NBA is moving to Hawkeye as its primary optical tracking partner. Uh, Most folks would be familiar with Hawkeye from tennis, where it does the line judgments. Um, It's also prominent in uh, soccer and some other sports. Uh, This is replacing Second Spectrum, which has been the optical provider for the NBA for a number of years. What's going to be changing is rather than simple center of mass tracking, which is what we've had for these last number of years, about 10 years or so, where – Each player is essentially converted into a dot on a screen. That dot is only tracking their center torso at all times as they, I believe, 25 times per second as they move around the court and also tracks the ball. In this system, we'll be much more dynamic. Uh, Hawkeye is setting up 12 cameras around each arena. They're not only in the rafters. They're around various points of the arena. They're going to be tracking 29 points on the body, including limbs, uh, extremities, not just the center of mass of the player. So the potential impact here on analysis is absolutely massive. Think, for instance, one of the simplest examples is shot contests. Currently, we have information about how close a defender's torso was to the shooter at the time when he was releasing the ball. That's decent information. That's a decent proxy for how well a shot is being contested by a defender. However, think about how much more detailed we will be able to be when instead of just this guy's torso was X number of feet away from this guy's torso when he shot, we will be able to say, okay, here's where both guys' arms and hands were Mm -hmm. at that exact moment. Uh, We're talking about exponentially higher levels of Mm -hmm. detail and granularity here. And then the other level of impact that this could have is on game ops and officiating. Uh, We have already seen systems demoed and they already have the capability to automate certain calls that are currently made by humans on the floor, goaltending, out of bounds, 
possibly certain timer related things with when the ball goes through the basket, those to make those sorts of things more precise. Uh, in fact, I do have some work coming uh, on, if I may plug myself a little, on ESPN here in the next, uh, it'll probably be during the first round of the playoffs or so, about the replay center and some of the advances that they're looking into there in terms of being able to both improve accuracy for games and improve the speed and efficiency of things so that we're not spending all game over at the review station watching reviews and those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. These Both those areas are a potential massive impact, and that's without getting into the future of uh, virtual reality, the ability to place viewers in the game at any any point where they wanted to be. You can watch the game from the standpoint of LeBron James or something like that. Uh, and then the other side of this is the potential impact on player health, which I was just mentioning. And as I get into that, I also want to discuss the kind of the second big part of this. And that is, and this is further away in terms of the future, but conversations are happening. And that is wearable sensors being actually worn by the players in question. For instance, in 2021, the WNBA and NBA uh, pioneered the use. It was a combination of this current Hawkeye system, which I just detailed, plus wearable sensors from a company called Connexon that were in the waistband of all the players. And this was during the Commissioner's Cup game in 2021 for the uh, for the WNBA. So just a single game. From that single game, they generated 50 million data points uh, in numerous areas, some Wait, of which... Bit. I don't understand. If we've already got all these different points on the body tracked with Hawkeye, why does... Why yeah, does I assume it help? these sensors aren't measuring motion. Are they measuring actual like things like heart rate and stuff like Like, are they biomedical sensors or are they motion sensors? So those would be... I was going to get to... Those would kind of be two varying levels, and that's a great question, actually. Biometrics would be one level, and you would... That would... There would t- it would take some collective bargaining and things like that yeah, to no, see that it. at the NBA level. But also, uh-huh. movement data... That's much, much more granular than the optical tracking. This is something now I'm I don't claim to be a tech expert, like I couldn't build one of these systems for you. But in the research that I've done, I've learned that both of these, both optical and wearable, have key advantages and the the that the other doesn't quite come up to par in and the true holy grail if you will is combining them Mm -hmm. to to reach maximum possible insights and when we're talking about player health the the area where we kind of got into this conversation whether it's biometrics or even just more detailed movement in terms of accelerations and decelerations load uh strain that's being played even g-force are uh Mm -hmm. is something that can be determined there Again, this is not going to allow medical professionals to just say, oh, no, that player is going to tear his ACL next game. we got to get him or her off the floor. It won't be to that level of detail at all. But the potential in this world for improvement is quite vast, I think. And technology is going to be the, the thing that gets us there. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a rather rosy outlook. But um, I'm a little bit skeptical of the idea that having this data is going to be able to predict someone's injury. This has been talked about forever. Um, oh, and- right. And, I don't mean to suggest that. Okay, so I mean, so but let's go even further. Well, when you say it, predict, predict, like, well, like, like I mean, your 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 examples. This this person. So there's we at Penn. We we thought about bringing tech and did actually brought technology. This designed to to sort of dis, discover whether someone is um is uh, heading in a direction that will make them susceptible to increase probability of injury is the probably the the right way to think about it. Right. No one no one's going to you can't say now. I mean that's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah, yeah no, but, no no and I mean I think probably the first wave certainly not being like oh this person's kind of measured behavior right now predicts an injury you know, 10 minutes from now or no, anything like that. No. It's, it's more, I could imagine what you're talking about here, like these sensors may be detecting kind of like, oh, that particular motion had like an extra torque to it 
that is predictive of injury. So it's like in real time, you can kind of be like an injury event may have just occurred. Let's get that guy out of there or whatever. Another variation is a finer measure of load. So right now they're, you know, whenever they're doing load management, they do this in various sports. They track how much, you know, how much a guy's skating, how much ice time, that kind of thing. And they, and then they, some guys need more rest, and so they figure these things out. This is this is potentially at least much finer measure of load if we can figure out what load is. You know, if you said G's, can you track G's in a game, and is that a measure of load? And if so, then maybe we can manage guys better. Well, I mean, that's that's something that I'm not skeptical about. I think that load individual load management has the ability to make better athletes and get more performance out of the individuals. I mean, that we've seen that across all sports that rest is so much more important than traditionally was was thought of mm-hmm. and if, and that varies at the individual mm-hmm. level enormously mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. what's right for one person is totally wrong for someone else mm-hmm. and and coaches would just give one re- workout and one regimen for everyone and, mm-hmm. and that's really changed we've seen that at the olympic level mm-hmm. um and i'd love to, you know, probably that would make a difference but the idea that you can you can bring this to injury prevention is a bold and ambitious hope. Well, ambitious right. is good. Yeah, I, fine. I'm, I'm also, <laughs> I mean, also, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're bringing jobs to the anal- analysts because you had these this there, level yeah. of data. Jobs my is, God, Adi's in a big jobs program. For I mean, analysts, yeah, job, but you, you you talk about the the need of, to hire people and companies to start to yeah. deal with this data. It's it's fifty three million in one on one data set want, so, multiplied by you know how many games a day, a week, a so year. So you ought to be on the bandwagon, man. You ought to be pushed the potential for the health benefits of this technology because it is a jobs program for all your yeah, students. Audie, you've got exactly. Students who but do I'm jobs. very skeptical of the idea that we have all this thing. Let's do something so we do something. Well, <laughs> but, but, but on the other hand, you know, it's like it's it's deep science essentially. It's like we're going to know things at a much finer detail than we ever did before. It's going to take us a while to figure it out. And unfortunately, in physiology, there's a lot of bad findings that probably Indeed. more bad findings than good findings, but. This is a way forward. It's a way forward. He's a scientist. He supports it really. Good. Ben, we're going <laughs> no, to let I, you I go. Think the way you... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. We'll give you the last word on this topic, please. I was just going to say that I think the the way you guys kind of contextualized it there over the last minute or two was was really effect, was more effective than the way I did. I, I didn't mean to suggest that we could just predict injuries with any kind of of consistent accuracy, but the over time more accurate measures of load, as you were discussing, are a, a fantastic way to at least. Uh, spot trends earlier to have ideas of oh is a player building a weakness in in this leg or on this knee or the or those kinds of things not that that could say with any kind of guarantee oh he's going to tear his acl in the next three weeks if he does this this and this but more of hey we see some potential red flags here let's get this player involved in these kinds of exercises to help work on that those yep. those sorts of things yep great Listen, we're going to have to let you go, but we want to hear something from you on referees. You're off and on about NBA referees, and this being playoff time, refs are going to get more attention than ever this time of year. So give us a little warning. Give us a pep talk. Give us some guidance on what we should and shouldn't think and yell and and, uh, cuss about when it comes to referees. Well, hey, I, I know that I take a very different stance on referees than the average person. And and I want to stop short before I say anything further of telling folks that you should never be annoyed at referees or never get mad at the refs. It's part of the game. 
it, particularly from a fan perspective, there is a, a a generally acrimonious relationship between refs and fans. And I know a whole lot of NBA referees because they're part of my beat. And I can tell you, none of them minds that whatsoever. They don't mind being the heels to some degree. They don't mind getting <laughs> booed in arenas. They understand that all of this is going to happen. And that's part of the game. That's completely fine. What I'm discussing are the more quote unquote serious conversations that you'll often see from media or from players when they complain about the referees and talk about how things need to change and how things need to be done. Everything I'm about to say is focused on that side of the conversation. If you're here, if you want to, you know, say some words to the ref when you're in the arena and your team is losing, I am not telling you not to do that by any stretch of the imagination. That said, there are numerous misconceptions surrounding the way referees are discussed, particularly in the NBA. Uh, The first, of course, is that refs are actively fixing games. I can at least understand where this comes from. We had a major issue in the NBA with Tim Donahue in the mid-2000s where he actually was fixing games and gambling on them and was put in jail for doing so. And I can understand why people would be uh, hesitant or would worry about that sort of thing in the NBA. However... I can tell you that both the FBI and the NBA have extensively investigated that situation and any of the refs who were in the league at that time and remain in the league today. Uh, some folks may not l- agree with the, the results that they took from that, but uh, any any suggestions that the league is actively trying to have referees throw games or influence games, it doesn't make any sense. They're, the risk far outweighs the potential reward for the NBA. And believe it or not, the NBA is doing really well right now and wouldn't want to put itself at that sort of risk. Uh, Misconception number two is that there is no accountability for referees. There's massive accountability for NBA referees. They are graded. Every single call they make is graded. It takes six between six and eight hours to grade a single game for the NBA's grading team, which by the way, I have more work that's in the uh, ESPN article that I have coming in the next few weeks. There's more information on those people. Those grades impact whether referees are then assigned to playoff games, which that impacts their salary. So uh, when your salary is directly tied to how well you officiate a game, I believe that is accountability. Some people could argue that that accountability needs to be more public and that internal accountability is not enough. That's a debate for a different time. The simple statement of NBA refs are not held accountable is not true. So, but, but, uh, but for example, it would be interesting to know just something about the base rate accuracy of calls as judged by these people who evaluate them after the fact just some sense i mean this is probably something they don't want share but it would be interesting to know like of the hundred calls in a game what percentage are affirmed essentially on review and and so i mean you, you, to, oh, sorry. i was going to say just for additional context you talked earlier in this conversation about some of the kind of technology maybe automating some of this stuff are the refs open to the how, how do the refs feel about a subset of their duties being automated Two great questions. Uh, as to the uh, – oh, excuse me. I just lost my train of thought. Sorry. Repeat base, the first question base, for me. Base rate of accuracy. Base, yes. Uh, so the NBA has actively moved away from touting percentages. It used to. It used to heavily tout a number that – uh, based depending on the given season, raised, it ranged between 92 and about 95 percent accuracy okay. for its okay. calls. However, it's moved away from that for a few reasons. One of them is that the evaluation system that it uses today includes certain uh, room for certain gray areas, including like calls where a referee on the floor with human eyes could not reasonably have been expected to pick up something because it was only identifiable right. by slow motion video later right. on. A few things like that. But I think generally an expectation around 92 to 95 is right. Part of that also depends on how you're defining uh, 
when a call needs to be adjudicated, um, which I could go, I could, <laughs> we could spend another 20 minutes just on that. It's a very interesting area. As for the, um, sorry, <laughs> remind me the second one. I, oh, I, just I, like I how open the refs are to oh, yeah. technological oh, advancement. I, I, I get the impression in, say, baseball, where we talk about this a lot, that the the umpires are not particularly open to their uh, various parts of their tasks being automated and, re- you know, essentially replaced by robots. So I don't know how the NBA refs feel about that. I certainly can't speak for every ref. I don't talk to all of them. But 100% of the referees I do speak to, it's very different from those MLB refs. They absolutely welcome this sort of thing. And the main reason for that is lots of the call types that we're talking about being replaced or automated are some of their hardest calls. Mm -hmm. Goaltending is the chief example. Every single NBA referee I talk to and say, what's your hardest call type? At least 90% of them say goaltending. And the reason why is I'm down here. The ball's way up there. The goal, the backboard might be blocking it. A huge player might be blocking it. Multiple huge players might be blocking it. It's very, very hard to make that call and get it right every time. Mm-hmm. The fact that the, the oh, excuse me, the potential for that to be automated for a really difficult bang bang out of bounds plays to be automated, where the referee doesn't have to be staring at the line with every little inch of precision they've got, that actually opens referees up to have much more of their visual availability for the calls that really do matter more and are more subjective. And that I shouldn't say matter more. Out-of-bounds calls matter, but that are more subjective. A block or a charge is something that a computer can't do. There's too much nuance to that sort of thing. Automating certain things that a computer can do opens up the avenues for referees to pay more attention to the stuff that they right, need to be focused. Of course. This is, this is great. I mean, this is an, an argument for algorithms in general. Um, fantastic. Well, listen, Ben, we have kept you longer than we promised we would. We appreciate your making time for us this afternoon. Love your work. Keep it up. And we'll talk to you more down the road. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Ben Dowsett, freelance writer on NBA, All Matters NBA. He has upcoming piece in on ESPN about NFL referees. You can find his work in General 538 and ESPN or on Twitter at Ben underscore Dowsett. That has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth and final quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball. Cade Massey hosting here with my buddy Shane Jensen. We've lost the guys. They've rolled away. But me and Shane are still here, and we're delighted to be here because we have Kate Madigan joining us. Kate is Assistant General Manager for the New Jersey Devils. That's an NHL team. That's an NHL team poised for a promising playoff run. Kate, a young executive in the NHL, making the lecture circuit lately. We want to talk to her. We want to find out what's going on. Kate, glad to see you. Thanks for making time for us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Happy to be on and to chat with you guys for a little bit. Absolutely. Well, we saw you on the program up at MIT. We were there. We tried to grab you. You were busy. Things Something about trade deadline, I think it was. Something small. Something small. Something it's seriously less important than money, money, Wharton Moneyball, but we, we'll be gracious. We'll be gracious. Um, but we're glad to have this chance to talk with you. Um, was that your first time at Sloan? And if so, what did you think? Did you have a good experience? I know it's quick, but what was your what were your impressions? Yes, it was my first time speaking. I actually, it was pretty full circle. I was there seven years ago when I was working at Deloitte in public accounting. 
had nothing to do with sports. And I went, just bought a ticket like anyone else, wanted to get into sports. And I went, I was too shy to even network, which is the point of it all. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure what, what I used the money for, but I went and I listened and five months later I got into the NHL. So I had gone once as um, a student, just networking type thing. And then this was my first time speaking. So it was pretty full circle in seven years to have bought a ticket than to be asked to speak. It was, it was a, it was a, it was a surreal moment. Um, I really enjoyed it. I was in and out quickly though. Well, that, you know, as a conference organizer, I'm sure those guys take pride in your kinds of stories that you come as a student and you show up later as a speaker. That's what, that's one of the reasons we do these kinds of conferences. That's terrific. Okay. But you've alluded to one of the most interesting features of your story. And that is that you move from accounting to the NHL. That's seriously not obvious. So is it that you grew up playing hockey and so you always knew you wanted to get into hockey or what is it that explains the move from accounting to hockey? Yeah, so very different background than most in an executive role in any sports. Um, Never played hockey, was a figure skater, ran track in college, but I grew up around the game. My dad was a hockey coach at Northeastern University for a while. And he was a scout with the Penguins, the Islanders. So I just always grew up around the game. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was a lot of people said, like, you remind us of the little girl from Remember the Titans yelling in the stands. (laughs) Like, how does she know this much at six years old? Um, So I was always around the game, but just in a different capacity. Never played. And I really fell in love with the team environment from a young age. And I went into public accounting because I love numbers. I love analyzing. I'm going to stop you. I want to hear about that, but I want to go back to one detail there. Figure skating. So how how does, how does your skating ability compare to the average, I don't know, what's a fair comparison? How is figure skating compared to hockey skating? And yes. do, you, do you get on the do you do you get on the ice now? Do you do a little something? Do you show the guys what you got? Is that a- I'm getting old? I'm 30 now, so I don't skate as much as I used to. I don't know. Some of those guys' edges, just for Brad's edges, are like far none. They're unbelievable. I do like to think I got some moves. Like I can skate pretty well, <laughs> one leg backwards, bendings. Um, I think in my prime, I could compete against some of them with their skating work, but I don't know about now. <laughs> I, I grew up. Uh, I grew up uh, playing hockey, and I was never all that good. But one thing my dad encouraged me to do for a couple summers, I actually enrolled in figure skating classes to mm-hmm. kind of improve the sort of finesse aspect of my hockey ability. I don't know how commonplace that is among hockey players growing up these days, but it used to be something that was, uh, you know, kind of considered, you know, a complementary skill set to, to, to the main. So, yeah, cross-training kind of mm-hmm. skill set to the main to main mm-hmm. hockey uh, skating skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did see. When I was younger, I would do, like, learn-to-skate programs and teach them, and there were a lot of younger kids who – Knew they wanted to get into hockey, but did start in figure skating. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it's a bad path. Mm-hmm. All right. So, similarly, there's lots of accountants who know they want to get into hockey, but they started in accounting. So, how did you make this transition? Yeah, a lot of it, just like any job, quite honestly, is networking. Um, trying to network with people because jobs don't always get posted. Um, and so, for me, it was I reached out to a couple of people. I reached out to my dad's old boss at the Penguins, who was with the Devils at the time, Ray Shiro. Just saying, like, I want to get into hockey. He's like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I don't know. I know there's a GM and a coach and some guy that runs a salary cap. But, like, you don't – not all the positions are in the media. So I networked with him. I sat down, asked a lot of questions. And then three months, three and a half months later, he said, we're hiring for this new position if you want to throw your name in the ring. And I did. And so that's that's kind of how it starts a lot of times is you kind of just throw out feelers. If people come back to you, that's kind of how it happens. So, Kate, let me let me ask what 
what your attitude was, what your orientation was, what your philosophy was when you first started, because you've you've progressed quickly. You've in just a few years moved in through a, a few different positions and into this assistant GM. What was your attitude? You want to get in. Now you're in the door. Like what? And this is kind of like what advice do you have for others who find themselves there? What was your disposition? Yeah, I talked a lot with my dad. So it was be a sponge two ears for listening, one love for speaking, like really soak up everything. Also, I came from a different background where I'd go to bed at 10 and wake up at 545. He's like, oh, no, no, no. Games are going on. There's things all times of night. He was like, you just got to stay out. That's when all the conversations happen. After the game, you go to a bar for a beer or for food because you didn't eat at the game and you're sitting around the table. That's when it's would you trade this guy for that guy? Or what about this player? And that's where those off the cuff conversations. So he was like, Hey, you just got to hang for a little bit because that's where you're going to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, not all conversations happen in the boardroom. I think that's everywhere, quite honestly. And so that was the advice I was given. Um, and I, I had to change my pattern a bit. I wasn't going to bed at 10. I might still be <laughs> at a game now at 10. Uh, so I had to change my lifestyle a little bit, but it was really just soak up everything I could. And I'd ask questions. I think that was one of the positives of coming from a different industry is I didn't feel like, oh, I played 10 years in the league. I feel dumb for asking this. I was like, hey, I'm a new perspective. Why are we doing it this way? Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt comfortable doing that, knowing that I didn't have a background in Mm -hmm. playing in hockey. It's funny you say that. I had a chance to interview Kwesi Adolfo Minsa, the GM for the Vikings, last week at a conference here. And he talked about exactly that thing. He said, I think I asked... I think I have less ego in the questions I ask. He said, I, I ask some questions like that. The guys who have been in coaching for 10, 20 years, they may not know, but they, they it's like, it's, it's almost like the thing where you're, at some point you're supposed to know someone's name. And, and, you, and so it's, it's gone too long. You can't ask them what their name is. It must yeah. be the same with questions. And so you're saying you take advantage of the license you have since you're not coming from a hockey background to ask all the questions. This is the thing I thought you were going to get to, Kate. It's not just a passive sponge, right? You're like actively going out there and soaking up this information. Yeah, yeah. It's not just sitting. It's also, I was really big and little things are opportunities. So someone my first year, hey, can you just come in and take notes? There's so much going on. I'm like, yeah, sure. Some people might see that as a negative. Like, I'm just taking notes. I'm like, I'm taking notes on trade deadline. Like I'm now listening. So now I can form an opinion. Now I can ask questions, maybe not then, but at a later time. So like, just being able to be in the room at the beginning to listen, and I might not have been giving an opinion my first three, four years. But to have that opportunity and like I soaked up everything, I would write notes. I'd go to different people asking questions, Google, my dad, whatever, um, just to really like understand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Kate, where what is your portfolio involved now as assistant GM? Oh, I, I, I don't even know where to start. I'm so bad at answering this question. Um, everything like, uh, well, I don't here, let's know. Make it, it let's, make on... it, let's make it concrete. So I know this isn't going to be a comprehensive sample, but it will be a concrete yes. one. What do you, what have you been doing this afternoon? Like, what are you worried about or what are you working on or who you, what are you talking to people about? Yeah, let's, let's see what I can say. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, a lot of different things. So I can kind of answer a lot of it is run by the critical date. So February, January, February was all trade deadline. Right now it's prepping for playoffs, um, coaching. We have a game today. Um, September is all training camps and roster decisions. July and April is budgets and hirings and things of that nature. So there's kind of a pocket of time. I joke my quietest time is probably November because everything is set and you're actually just evaluating. Whereas 
at the 11, nine months, you're always prepping for something. The draft is coming up. We're starting year end meetings on the amateur scouting side. So a lot of different things. I travel full time with the team. So that's one of the things that probably takes up my most amount of time. Um, the operations and logistics, um, working with the group and just traveling, whatever comes up. There's mm-hmm. always things you can't plan for that happen in mm-hmm. a day. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what is your role relative to analytics coming out of coming out of your you have a master's in accounting. You've worked for Deloitte. I might expect you to, to be somebody they would look to to make sense of things or you, we might expect you to be advocating on the analytics side. You've been through the, the personnel side of things on, on scouting. What role have you played on that whole front within the building? Yeah, I played a, a decent sized role my first two years. Um, but since then, not as much. We have a huge staff, which is amazing. We have um, a VP, a director, software engineers, all, all of this stuff. And they're really like, I can't code. I'm not going to pretend to say I do something I don't. But where I kind of play in is GM Tom Fitzgerald has a group of four or five. And so we'll get in the room, one being our head of analytics. And so we'll, whether it's us coming to him with ideas, him coming to us with ideas, poking holes, challenging. So I'm kind of in that group when we're, if it's a player we're trading for, it's like, okay, analytics, what do you say? Well, what about this? Well, how about this? So it's kind of poking holes and discussing as a group. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work with them just like as a liaison with Tom Fitzgerald if we need things. Um, but I'm not like technically in the analytics capacity. My first two years when the group was smaller, I was doing some basic stuff, mm-hmm. helping with pregame and postgame and things of that nature, but been taken out of it. I'll, I'll leave it to the uh, professionals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, Kate, you talk about being in these rooms, and we talked earlier about staying up, you know, eating after the game and having the beers and asking the questions. How often are you the only woman in the room? And what difference has it made for for your experience? And what advice do you have for other women who are in minority situations? Because you seem to be doing something right. Well, thank you. <laughs> some days. <laughs> some days. Um, All of us are only some, some days, Kate. <laughs> some days. Yeah, I'd say in the in the small group, um, Tom Fitzgerald's leadership group, yes, I am the only women. But when we expand the group a little bit, we do have other women. Megan Duggan, our director of player development, she runs all of our development. She's in the room sometimes. Um, we have others. On our floor, there's five women. Um, Some are doing family alumni team initiatives. Some are doing schedules and operations. So, like, I actually am surrounded by a good amount of women on a day-to-day basis. In the smaller group, it is just me, but it's also, like, I don't feel like it's just me because I'm grabbing lunch and saying hi to all these women on our floor. And they're honestly the ones that paved the way for me. Um, And I think there's always... When there's a woman that may have a high position, there's always 10, 15, 20 other women who have helped pave that way. So I think a lot of credit is due to the other women in the organization. More so just like when I came in, like, what am I supposed to do? Like, they really helped me understand where to go, what to say, like, just learning the industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say my my biggest advice would be to advocate for yourself. Um, You're thinking about what you want more than anyone else. So if you want to be in a meeting ask for it you have to be comfortable getting said no to right but also you might want a meeting someone's like i would never think to invite kate but yeah if she wants to learn great come mm-hmm. on in mm-hmm. and it's something mm-hmm. you're thinking about a hundred percent of your day and someone's thinking about one percent <laughs> um but you also have to be comfortable getting sell- said no to mm-hmm. um so i think it's a fine balance but i think you have to advocate for yourself um 
in all honesty. So, like, l- perhaps lost in some of the very historical stuff that's been going on in the NHL season this year has been, I think, a hist- almost historical level turnaround at the team level by the Devils. You know, they, I mean, they've, they've been kind of, you know, you know, near the bottom of, of above the Atlantic for the last few years. And then all of a sudden, you know, they turn around this year and have like, you know, like over 100 points. I, again, if, if if the Bruins weren't doing what they were doing, I think everybody would be talking about what the Devils are doing. So I don't know if you would mind talking a little bit about what what the energy's been like, what, what what's it been like to be in the organization during this turnaround. And you kind of see this turnaround as... You know, just kind of the the uh, the accumulation of a ton of incremental little improvements along the way the last couple of years, or has there been just kind of an unexpected sea change leading to this? Well, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, it is, it's just it's your first year as assistant GM, right? There's just a Madigan effect. Is that the? I mean, you can you can. No, no, no. no. <laughs> there's an opportunity for you to take as much credit for it as you want. In in in, in, in no, that I will question, take no credit. This is a Tom Fitzgerald and group and ownership buy-in. Um, to the day I die, I will say that what Tom Fitzgerald has done, um, the support from Josh Harris, David Blitzer, Tad Brown, our managing partners, like it's been unbelievable. Um, when Fitzy came on three years ago, he had a plan and we've all helped, right? Like it's a big group help, but we've stuck true to it. And I think a great leader creates other leaders and that's what he's doing with his cohorts. Um, but he's really the visionary and he's done an amazing job. Um, it has been a quick turnaround. I think if you asked us last year, we probably envisioned us being in that maybe Islanders, Panthers, clawing where they're at at the standings, probably not the third team to clinch a spot. Um, will we take it? Absolutely. Uh, but I, I think we probably are a year before what we expected, but there's also, you can't put a price on some of those intangibles that we acquired over the summer, the Palats, the Hollas, the Smiths, some of those players we acquired for certain reasons. And that's what we needed for this puzzle piece. And that's why I think we've excelled a little bit quicker than, than we would have thought. Um, I'm from Boston, born and raised. So all my friends are Bruins fans. And I'm like, guys, we're doing good too. I know they're doing really good. But like, what about, what about us? Well, they'll notice if you knock um, them so out of the playoffs. Kind of pain. Yeah, I know. They're like, are we going to play you? I'm like, well, hopefully, because then we'd be in the third round. <laughs> Kate, we, we often joke about the NHL playoffs being coin flips, essentially. How do you insiders feel about it? And especially after performing so well, um, what's the orientation going in? Do you think it's as random as we seem to think it is? I think it's preparation. It's a different style of hockey, and it's a style of hockey the Devils haven't played in five years. But to what I just mentioned, that's why we have some of those winners. Um if, if you haven't seen um, the video they did on Palat when he went back, he's a warrior. And they all say that. And that's why we got him. He's a playoff warrior. And that's going to help us. So we did put some of those pieces in play. Playoff hockey, it's, it's just a different level. And it will be new to some guys, and you have to get acclimated to it. I don't think it's random, but I do see what other people see of when one seed knocks off the other. And you're like, whoa. Um, but it's it's how you play the game. It's prepping. It's usually you spend a few days on a, a pregame report, but you're playing a team every other day. Now you're playing a team for 10, 12 days, depending what it is. So it's a lot more coaching. It's a lot more prepping and what goes into it. So I wouldn't say to- coin flip, but I do see other seeds getting knocked off by lower seeds. So I could see that's anywhere, right? Basketball, football, like hockey. So 
All right, Kate. Well, listen, we, we have to let you go for now, but we do hope to talk to you again down the road. Thank you for making time for us. And we're going to be following the Devils a little bit more closely now right here on the cusp of the playoffs. We wish you the best with it. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. Kate Madigan, assistant GM with the New Jersey Devils. That has been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM for the whole crew. Shane Jensen here with me all the way. Body Weiner, Eric Bradlow, boss man Matty Datz, associate boss man Dion Simpkins. It's always good to see Dion here in the studio. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.